Section 18 of the Journal of a Tour to the Hebrides with Samuel Johnson by James Boswell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anthony Ogus. Monday, 4th October. About eight o'clock we went in the boat to Mr. Simpson's vessel and took in Dr. Johnson. He was quite well, though he had tasted nothing but a dish of tea since Saturday night. On our expressing some surprise at this, he said that, when he lodged in the temple and had no regular system of life, he had fasted for two days at a time, during which he had gone about visiting, though not at the hours of dinner or supper, that he had drunk tea but eaten no bread, that this was no intentional fasting, but happened just in the course of a literary life. There was a little miserable public house close upon the shore to which we should have gone had we landed last night, but this morning Cole resolved to take us directly to the house of Captain Lachlan Maclean, a descendant of his family, who had acquired a fortune in the East Indies and taken a farm in Cole. We had about an English mile to go to it. Colin Joseph and some others ran to some little horses called here shelties that were running wild on a heath and catched one of them. We had a saddle with us which was clapped upon it and a straw halter was put on its head. Dr. Johnson was then mounted and Joseph very slowly and gravely led the horse. I said to Dr. Johnson, I wish sir the club saw you in this attitude. It was a very heavy rain, and I was wet to the skin. Captain Maclean had but a poor temporary house, or rather hut. However, it was a very good haven to us. There was a blazing peat fire, and Mrs. Maclean, daughter of the minister of the parish, got us tea. I felt still the motion of the sea. Dr. Johnson said it was not in imagination, but a continuation of motion on the fluids, like that of the sea itself after the storm is over. There were some books on the board which served as a chimney-piece. Dr. Johnson took up Burnett's history of his own times. He said, The first part of it is one of the most entertaining books in the English language. It is quite dramatic. While he went about everywhere, saw everywhere, and heard everywhere. By the first part I mean so far as it appears that Burnett himself was actually engaged in what he has told, and this may be easily distinguished. Captain Maclean censured Burnet for his high praise of Lauderdale in a dedication when he shows him in his history to have been so bad a man. Johnson, I do not myself think that a man should say in a dedication what he could not say in a history. However, allowance should be made, for there is a great difference. The known style of a dedication is flattery. It professes to flatter. There is the same difference between what a man says in a dedication and what he says in a history, as between a lawyer's pleading a cause and reporting it. The day passed away pleasantly enough. The wind became fair for mull in the evening, and Mr. Simpson resolved to sail next morning, but having been thrown into the island of Col, we were unwilling to leave it unexamined especially as we considered that the Campbelltown vessel would sail for Marle in a day or two, and therefore we determined to stay. Tuesday, 5th October. I rose and wrote my journal till about nine. 
and then went to Dr. Johnson, who sat up in bed and talked and laughed. I said it was curious to look back ten years to the time when we first thought of visiting the Hebrides. How distant and improbable the scheme then appeared. Yet here we were actually among them. Sir, said he, people may come to do anything almost by talking of it. I really believe I could talk myself into building a house upon Island Isa, though I should probably never come back again to see it. I could easily persuade Reynolds to do it, and there would be no great sin in persuading him to do it. Sir, he would reason thus. What will it cost me to be there once in two or three summers? Why, perhaps five hundred pounds. And what is that, in comparison of having a fine retreat to which a man can go, or to which he can send a friend? "'You would never find out that he may have this within twenty miles of London. "'Then I would tell him that he may marry one of the Miss MacLeods, a lady of great family. "'Sir, it is surprising how people will go to a distance for what they may have at home. "'I knew a lady who came up from Lincolnshire to Knightsbridge with one of her daughters "'and gave five guineas a week for a lodging and a warm bath, that is, mere warm water. "'That, you know, could not be had in Lincolnshire.' She said it was made either too hot or too cold there. After breakfast, Dr. Johnson and I and Joseph mounted horses, and Colin the captain walked with us about a short mile across the island. We paid a visit to the Reverend Mr. Hector MacLean. His parish consists of the islands of Col and Tyrie. He was about seventy-seven years of age, a decent ecclesiastic, dressed in a full suit of black clothes and a black wig, he appeared like a Dutch pastor, or one of the Assembly of Divines at Westminster. Dr. Johnson observed to me afterwards that he was a fine old man, and was as well dressed and had as much dignity in his appearance as the dean of a cathedral. We were told that he had a valuable library, though but poor accommodation for it, being obliged to keep his books in large chests. It was curious to see him and Dr. Johnson together. Neither of them heard very distinctly, so each of them talked in his own way and at the same time. Mr. Maclean said he had a confutation of Bale by Leibniz. Johnson, a confutation of Bale, sir? What part of Bale do you mean? The greatest part of his writings is not confutable. It is historical and critical. Mr. Maclean said the irreligious part, and proceeded to talk of Leibniz's controversy with Clark calling Leibniz a great man. Johnson. Why, sir, Leibniz persisted in affirming that Newton called space sensorium numinis, notwithstanding he was corrected, and desired to observe that Newton's words were quasi-sensorium numinis. No, sir, Leibniz was as paltry a fellow as I know. Out of respect to Queen Caroline, who patronised him, Clark treated him too well. During the time that Dr. Johnson was thus going on, the old minister was standing with his back to the fire, cresting up erect, pulling down the front of his periwig, and talking what a great man Leibniz was. To give an idea of the scene would require a page with two columns, but it ought rather to be represented by two good players. The old gentleman said Clark was very wicked for going so much into the Aryan system, "'I will not say he was wicked,' said Dr. Johnson. "'He might be mistaken.' "'Maclean, 
He was wicked to shut his eyes against the scriptures, and worthy men in England have since confuted him to all intents and purposes. Johnson. I know not who has confuted him to all intents and purposes. Here again there was a double talking, each continuing to maintain his own argument without hearing exactly what the other said. I regretted that Dr. Johnson did not practice the art of accommodating himself to different sorts of people. Had he been softer with this venerable old man, we might have had more conversation. But his forcible spirit and impetuosity of manner may be said to spare neither sex nor age. I have seen even Mrs. Thrale stunned, but I have often maintained that it is better he should retain his own manner. Pliability of address, I conceive, to be inconsistent with that majestic power of mind which he possesses, and which produces such noble effects. A lofty oak will not bend like a supple willow. He told me afterwards he liked firmness in an old man, and was pleased to see Mr. Maclean so orthodox. At his age it is too late for a man to be asking himself questions as to his belief. We rode to the northern part of the island where we saw the ruins of a church or chapel. We then proceeded to a place called Grissipole on the rough pool. At Grissipole we found a good farmhouse belonging to the Laird of Col and possessed by Mr. McSwain. On the beach here there is a singular variety of curious stones. I picked up one very like a small cucumber. By the by, Dr. Johnson told me that Gay's line in the beggar's opera, as men should serve a cucumber, etc., has no waggish meaning with reference to men flinging away cucumbers as too cooling, which some have thought, for it has been a common saying of physicians in England that a cucumber should be well sliced and dressed with pepper and vinegar, and then thrown out as good for nothing. Mr. McSwain's predecessors had been in Skye from a very remote period, upon the estate belonging to MacLeod, probably before MacLeod had it. The name is certainly Norwegian, from Sueno, King of Norway. The present Mr. McSwain left Skye upon the late MacLeod's raising his rents. He then got this farm from Col. He appeared to be near fourscore, but looked as fresh and was as strong as a man of fifty. His son Hugh looked older, and, as Dr. Johnson observed, had more the manners of an old man than he. I had often heard of such instances, but never saw one before. Mrs. McSwain was a decent old gentlewoman. She was dressed in tartan, and could speak nothing but Erse. She said she taught Sir James MacDonald Erse, and would teach me soon. I could now sing a verse of the song Hatch Infirmary, made in honour of Alan, the famous captain of Clan Reynold, who fell at Sheriff Moor, whose servant who lay on the field watching his master's dead body, being asked next day who that was, answered, he was a man yesterday. We were entertained here with a primitive heartiness. Whiskey was served round in a shell, according to the ancient Highland custom. Dr. Johnson would not partake of it, but being desirous to do honour to the modes of other times, drank some water out of the shell. In the forenoon, Dr. Johnson said, It would require great resignation to live in one of these islands. Boswell, I don't know, sir. I have felt myself at times in a state of almost mere physical existence, 
satisfied to eat, drink and sleep and walk about and enjoy my own thoughts, and I can figure a continuation of this. Johnson. Aye, sir, but if you were shut up here, your own thoughts would torment you. You would think of Edinburgh or London, and that you could not be there. We set out after dinner for Braycucker, the family seat of the Laird of Col, accompanied by the young Laird, who had now got a horse, and by the younger Mr. McSwain, whose wife had gone thither before us to prepare everything for our reception, the Laird and his family being absent at Aberdeen. It is called Braycucker, or the Spotted Field, because in summer it is enamelled with clover and daisies, as young Col told me. We pass by a place where there is a very large stone, I may call it a rock, a vast weight for Ajax. The tradition is that a giant threw such another stone at his mistress up to the top of a hill at a small distance, and that she in return threw this mass down to him. It was all in sport. Marlow may pet it, lasciva puella. As we advanced we came to a large extent of plain ground, I had not seen such a place for a long time. Col and I took a gallop upon it by way of race. It was very refreshing to me after having been so long taking short steps in hilly countries. It was like stretching a man's legs after being cramped in a short bed. We also passed close by a large extent of sand hills near two miles square. Dr. Johnson said, he never had the image before it was horrible if barrenness and danger could be so i heard him after we were in the house of Braycucker, repeating to himself as he walked about the room and smothered in the dusty whirlwind dies probably he had been thinking of the whole of the simile in cato of which that is the concluding line the sandy desert had struck him so strongly the sand has of late been blown over a good deal of meadow and the people of the island say that their fathers remembered much of the space which is now covered with sand to have been under tillage. Col's house is situated on a bay called Braycucker Bay. We found here a neat new-built gentleman's house, better than any we had been in since we were at Lord Errol's. Dr Johnson relished it much at first, but soon remarked to me that there was nothing becoming a chief about it, it was a mere tradesman's box. He seemed quite at home, and no longer found any difficulty in using the Highland address, for as soon as we arrived he said with a spirited familiarity, Now, Col, if you could get us a dish of tea. Dr. Johnson and I had each an excellent bedchamber. We had a dispute which of us had the best curtains. His were rather the best, being of linen, but I insisted that my bed had the best posts, which was undeniable. Well, said he, if you have the best posts, we will have you tied to them and whipped. I mention this slight circumstance only to show how ready he is, even in mere trifles, to get the better of his antagonist by placing him in a ludicrous view. I have known him sometimes use the same art when hard-pressed in serious disputation goldsmith i remember to retaliate for many a severe defeat which he has suffered from him applied to him a lively saying in one of sibber's comedies which puts this part of his character in a strong light there is no arguing with johnson for if his pistol misses fire he knocks you down with the butt end of it 
Wednesday, 6th October. After a sufficiency of sleep, we assembled at breakfast. We were just as if in barracks. Everybody was master. We went and viewed the old castle of Col, which is not far from the present house, near the shore, and founded on a rock. It has never been a large feudal residence, and has nothing about it that requires a particular description. Like other old inconvenient buildings of the same age, it exemplified Grey's picturesque lines, huge windows that exclude the light, and passages that lead to nothing. It may, however, be worth mentioning that on the second story we saw a vault, which was, and still is, the family prison. There was a woman put into it by the laird for theft within these ten years, and any offender would be confined there yet, for, from the necessity of the thing, as the island is remote from any power established by law, the laird must exercise his jurisdiction to a certain degree. We were shown in a corner of this vault a hole into which Col said greater criminals used to be put. It was now filled up with rubbish of different kinds. He said it was of great depth. Aye, said Dr. Johnson, smiling, all such places that are filled up were of a great depth. He is very quick in showing that he does not give credit to careless or exaggerated accounts of things. After seeing the castle, we looked at a small hut near it. It is called Tefrachish, i.e. the Frenchman's house. Col could not tell us the history of it. A poor man with a wife and children now lived in it. We went into it, and Dr. Johnson gave them some charity. There was but one bed for all the family, and the hut was very smoky. When he came out, he said to me, Et hoc secundum setentiam philosophorum est esse beatus. Boswell. The philosophers, when they placed happiness in a cottage, supposed cleanliness and no smoke. Johnson. Sir, they did not think about either. We walked a little in the laird's garden, in which endeavours have been used to rear some trees, but as soon as they got above the surrounding wall, they died. Dr. Johnson recommended sowing the seeds of hardy trees instead of planting. Col and I rode out this morning and viewed a part of the island. In the course of our ride we saw a turnip field which he had hoed with his own hands. He first introduced this kind of husbandry into the western islands. We also looked at an appearance of lead which seemed very promising. It has been long known, for I found letters to the late Laird from Sir John Areskin and Sir Alexander Murray, respectively. After dinner came Mr. Maclean of Cornick, brother to Isle of Muck, who is a cadet of the family of Cole. He possesses the two ends of Cole, which belong to the Duke of Argyle. Cornick had lately taken a lease of them at a very advanced rent, rather than let the Campbells get a footing in the island, one of whom had offered nearly as much as he. Dr. Johnson well observed that landlords are much when they calculate merely what their land may yield. The rent must be in a proportionate ratio of what the land may yield and of the power of the tenant to make it yield. A tenant cannot make by his land, but according to the corn and cattle which he has. Suppose you should give him twice as much land as he has. It does him no good unless he gets also more stock. 
"'It is clear, then, that the Highland landlords who let their substantial tenants leave them are infatuated, for the poor small tenants cannot give them good rents from the very nature of things. They have not the means of raising more from their farms.' Cornick, Dr. Johnson said, was the most distinct man that he had met with in these isles. He did not shut his eyes or put his fingers in his ears, which he seemed to think was a good deal the mode with most of the people whom we have seen of late. Thursday, 7th October. Captain Maclean joined us this morning at breakfast. There came on a dreadful storm of wind and rain, which continued all day, and rather increased at night. The wind was directly against our getting to Mull. We were in a strange state of abstraction from the world. We could neither hear from our friends nor write to them. Col had brought Dahl on the Fathers, Lucas on Happiness, and Moore's Dialogues from the Reverend Mr. Maclean's, and Burnet's History of His Own Times from Captain Maclean's, and he had of his own some books of farming and Gregory's Geometry. Dr. Johnson read a good deal of Burnett and of Gregory, and I observed he made some geometrical notes in the end of his pocket-book. I read a little of Young's six weeks' tour through the southern counties, and of his epistles which I had bought at Inverness, and which helped to solace many a weary hour. We were to have gone with Dr. Johnson this morning to see the mine, but were prevented by the storm. While it was raging, he said, we may be glad we're not damnati ad metalla. Friday, 8th October. Dr. Johnson appeared today very weary of our present confined situation. He said, I want to be on the mainland and go on with existence. This is a waste of life. I shall here insert, without regard to chronology, some of his conversation at different times. There was a man some time ago who was well received for two years among the gentlemen of Northamptonshire by calling himself my brother. At last he grew so impudent as by his influence to get tenants turned out of their farms. Alan the printer, who is of that county, came to me, asking with much appearance of doubtfulness if I had a brother, and upon being assured I had none alive, he told me of the imposition and immediately wrote to the country, and the fellow was dismissed. It pleased me to hear that so much was got by using my name. It is not every name that can carry double, do both for a man's self and his brother. I shall be glad to see the fellow. However, I could have done nothing against him. A man can have no redress for his name being used, or ridiculous stories being told of him in the newspapers, except he can show that he has suffered damage. Some years ago, a foolish piece was published, said to be written by S. Johnson. Some of my friends wanted me to be very angry about this. I said it would be in vain, for the answer would be, S. Johnson may be Simon Johnson, or Simeon Johnson, or Solomon Johnson. And even if the full name Samuel Johnson had been used, it might be said, It is not you, it is a much cleverer fellow. Beauclerk and I, and Langton and Lady Sidney Beauclerk, mother to our friend, were one day driving in a coach by Cooper's Gardens, which were then unoccupied. I, in sport, proposed that Beauclerk and Langton and myself should take them, and we amused ourselves with scheming how we should all do our parts. 
Lady Sidney grew angry and said, An old man should not put such things in young people's heads. She had no notion of a joke, sir, had come in late into life, and had a mighty unpliable understanding. Carte's Life of the Duke of Ormond is considered as a book of authority, but it is ill-written. The matter is diffused in too many words. There is no animation, no compression, no vigour. Two good volumes in duodecimo might be made out of the two in folio. Talking of our confinement here, I observed that our discontent and impatience could not be considered as very unreasonable. For that we were just in the state of which Seneca complained so grievously, while in exile in Corsica. Yes, said Dr. Johnson, and he was not farther from home than we are. The truth is, he was much nearer. There was a good deal of rain today, and the wind was still contrary. Cornick attended me while I amused myself in examining a collection of papers belonging to the family of Cole. The first laird was a younger son of the chieftain Maclean, and got the middle part of Cole for his patrimony. Dr. Johnson, having given a very particular account of the connection between this family and a branch of the family of Camerons called McClonagh, I shall only insert the following document, which I found in Cole's cabinet, as a proof of its continuance, even to a late period. To the Laird of Col, dear sir, the long-standing tract of firm affectionate friendship twixt your worthy predecessors and ours affords us such assurance as that we may have full reliance on your favour and undoubted friendship in recommending the bearer Ewan Cameron, our cousin, son to the deceased Dougal McConnell of Indermerley, sometime in Glenpeon, to your favour and conduct, who is a man of undoubted honesty and discretion, only that he has the misfortune of being alleged to have been accessory to the killing of one of MacMartin's family about fourteen years ago, upon which allegiance the MacMartins are now so sanguine on revenging that they are fully resolved for the deprivation of his life, to the preventing of which you are relied on by us as the only fit instrument and a most capable person. Therefore your favour and protection is expected and entreated during his good behaviour. And failing of which behaviour, you're pleased to use him as a most insignificant person deserves. Sir, he had upon the allegiance foresaid been transported at Lochiel's desire to France to gratify the MacMartins, and upon his return home, about five years ago, married. But now he is so much threatened by the MacMartins, that he is not secure enough to stay where he is, being Arden and Merchan, which occasions this trouble to you. Wishing prosperity and happiness to attend still yourself, worthy lady and good family, we are in the most affectionate manner, dear sir, your most obliged, affectionate and most humble servants, Dougal Cameron of Strone, Dougal Cameron of Ban, Dougal Cameron in Vuiline, Dougal Cameron of Invelli, Strone, 11th March, 1737. Ewan Cameron was protected, and his son has now a farm from the laird of Col in Mull. The family of Col was very loyal in the time of the great Montrose, from whom I found two letters in his own handwriting. The first is as follows. For my very loving friend, the laird of Col, Sir, I must heartily thank you for all your willingness and good affection to His Majesty's service, 
and particularly the sending alongs of your son, to whom I will have in particular respect, hoping also that you will still continue in good instrument for the advancing there of the King's service, for which, and all your former loyal carriages, be confident you shall find the effects of His Majesty's favour, as they can be witnessed you, by your very faithful friend, Montrose. Strathine, 20 January 1646 the other is for the laird of col sir having occasion to write to your fields i cannot be forgetful of your willingness and good affection to his majesty's service i acknowledge to you and thank you heartily for it assuring that in what lies in my power you shall find the good meanwhile i shall expect that you will continue your loyal endeavours in wishing those slack people that are about you to appear more obedient than they do and loyal in their prince's service whereby I assure you you shall find me ever your faithful friend Montrose. Petty, 17 April, 1646. I found some uncouth lines on the death of the present laird's father, entitled Nature's Elegy upon the Death of Donald MacLean of Col. They are not worth insertion. I shall only give what is called his epitaph, which Dr. Johnson said was not so very bad. Nature's minion, virtue's wonder, art's corrective, here lies under. I asked what art's corrective meant. Why, sir, said he, that the laird was so exquisite that he set art right when she was wrong. I found several letters to the late Col from my father's old companion at Paris, Sir Hector MacLean, one of which was written at the time of settling the colony in Georgia. It dissuades Col from letting people go there, and assures him there will soon be an opportunity of employing them better at home. Hence it appears that emigration from the Highlands, though not in such numbers at a time as of late, has always been practised. Dr. Johnson observed that the lairds, instead of improving their country, diminished their people. There are several districts of sandy desert in Col. There are forty-eight lochs of fresh water, but many of them are very small, mere pools. About one half of them, however, have trout and eel. There is a great number of horses in the island, mostly of a small size. Being overstocked, they sell some in Tirie and on the mainland. Their black cattle, which are chiefly rough-haired, are reckoned remarkably good. The climate being very mild in winter, they never put their beasts in any house. The lakes are never frozen so as to bear a man, and snow never lies above a few hours. They have a good many sheep, which they eat mostly themselves and sell but a few. They have goats in several places. There are no foxes, no serpents, toads or frogs, nor any venomous creature. They have otters and mice here, but had no rats till lately an American vessel brought them. There is a rabbit warren on the north-east of the island, belonging to the Duke of Argyle. Young Col intends to get some hares, of which there are none at present. There are no black cock, muir-fowl, nor partridges. But there are snipe, wild duck, wild geese and swans in winter. Wild pigeons, plover and a great number of starlings, of which I shot some, and found them pretty good eating. Woodcocks come hither, though there is not a tree upon the island. There are no rivers in Col, but only some brooks in which there is a great variety of fish. 
In the whole isle there are but three hills, and none of them considerable for a highland country. The people are very industrious. Every man can tan. They get oak and birch bark and lime from the mainland. Some have pits, but they commonly use tubs. I saw brogues very well tanned, and every man can make them. They all make candles of the tallow of their beasts, both moulded and dipped, and they all make oil of the livers of fish. The little fish called cuddies produce a great deal. They sell some oil out of the island, and they use it much for light in their houses, in little iron lamps, most of which they have from England. But of late their own blacksmith makes them. He is a good workman, but he has no employment in shoeing horses, for they all go unshod here, except some of a better kind belonging to young Cole, which were now in Mull. There are two carpenters in Cole, but most of the inhabitants can do something as boat carpenters. They can all die. Heath is used for yellow and for red a moss which grows on stones. They make broadcloth and tartan and linen of their own wool and flax, sufficient for their own use, as also stockings. Their bonnets come from the mainland. Hardware and several small articles are brought annually from Greenock and sold in the only shop in the island, which is kept near the house, or rather hut, used for public worship, there being no church in the island. The inhabitants of Col have increased considerably within these thirty years, as appears from the parish registers. There are but three considerable taxmen on Col's part of the island. The rest is let to small tenants, some of whom pay so low a rent as four, three, or even two guineas. The highest is seven pounds, paid by a farmer whose son goes yearly on foot to Aberdeen for education, and in summer returns and acts as a schoolmaster in coal. Dr. Johnson said, There is something noble in a young man's walking two hundred miles and back again every year for the sake of learning. This day a number of people came to Col with complaints of each other's trespasses. Cornick, to prevent their being troublesome, told them that the lawyer from Edinburgh was here, and if they did not agree, he would take them to task. They were alarmed at this, said they had never been used to go to law, and hoped Col would settle matters himself. In the evening Cornick left us. End of section 18